1420 WBSM presents Spooky South Coast with your hosts Tim Weisberg and Matt Costa. Good evening and welcome to Spooky South Coast. Tim Weisberg here along with the aforementioned silent assassin Matt Costa. And science advisor Matt Moniz is not here in the spooky studio with us tonight because tonight is our annual Bridgewater Triangle investigation show. Now, uh, for those of you who are unfamiliar with the program, on Spooky South Coast we talk about the paranormal each and every Saturday night. And once a year we like to send uh, teams out into the wild, out into the, the wilderness, so to speak, uh, to go out and do some actual live paranormal investigation while we're on the air, and they call in and they report to us uh, what's going on out in the field. And the focus of this investigation is the Bridgewater Triangle, which is a paranormal hotspot, a vortex, if you will, uh, that the original parameters, uh, when it was first mentioned by our friend Lauren Coleman back in the early 1980s, was it was something like Abington, Bridgewater, and what, like Rehoboth forming the triangle. And then all the paranormal activity that happened in there uh, was considered to be uh, at a very high level for such a small geographic area. Well, over the years, um, through the work of people like our friend Chris Balzano, and who, who will be joining us later on in the program, and a number of other investigators, the definition of that Bridgewater Triangle has expanded out. And now, of course, if, if you can hear the sound of my voice over the terrestrial airwaves here at WBSM, you're pretty much in the Bridgewater Triangle. Uh, and for a number of people that might be listening online or watching the spooky TV feed at SpookySouthCoast.com, you know, there's a chance you could be in there as well because the idea of this paranormal triangle is always expanding, um, mainly because we find that no matter how much more we stretch the borders, we're still finding a high level of paranormal activity within those borders. And we could be talking about anything from, you know, ghostly sightings or, or you know, different haunting aspects of hauntings to UFO sightings to, uh, you know, Bigfoots. Well, big feet, I guess. But numerous Bigfoot sightings, uh, Thunderbirds, which are giant birds, uh, you know, bigger than a man. Uh, all of these stories that we've heard over the years uh, kind of all converge in this Bridgewater Triangle. And we know that a number of you have had experiences like that, and you might not realize that it was within the Bridgewater Triangle, uh, but now you know that, hey... <laughs> Not only does this stuff happen all the time, but where we are, it kind of happens really frequently. So if you'd like to call in at any point during the program and share, 508-996-0500, Those are the numbers. They're also posted up on SpookySouthCoast.com. You can also email us, SpookyCrew, at SpookySouthCoast.com if you want to share an experience or ask a question that way, and we can make sure that we get uh, all of our 
investigators involved during the course of the evening as well. So if you have a question about a particular location, there's a chance they could be out there. And to our investigators who are probably out there listening right now at the start of the show, uh, we will be getting in touch with all of you. The plan is to call you on a revolving basis uh, about every 10 to 15 minutes or so to find out what's going on. Now, normally when we do this show, this uh, Bridgewater Triangle Investigation Program, it's there's a number of sites that we visit or repeatedly, um, places where we know that there's been a, a high amount of activity and where investigators feel comfortable going out and investigating and, and being able to call into the show at the same time. Because when you're a paranormal investigator, it's a hard enough job uh, to do that effectively without having to worry about calling a radio station or, or taking a call from a radio station every 15 minutes. So generally they tend to go to the same locations over and over again because there's a level of comfort with those locations. Well, tonight we kind of threw a curve uh, a little bit to the way we normally do it. And tonight we're putting a focus on sites that are related to King Philip's War. Because if you subscribe to the theory of you know paranormal activity being imprinted energy left on various locations. King Philip's War certainly left a lot of energy, a lot of energy that has yet to maybe be fully recognized uh, for what it was. And so many of these sites that are related to the war are purportedly haunted as well. So that's where we're sending the teams out tonight. Matt Costa, you and I have done uh, our own share of visiting some of these sites, not necessarily in an investigative sense, but just uh, for historical learning and historical aspect. And, and we've talked in the past about how King Philip's War is just something that's not really taught in schools. And uh, did you kind of get a feeling of reverence when you went to some of these locations? Um, do, do you, are, are you saddened by it, or are you just – are you saddened? Well, I know uh, I personally didn't get to go to uh, a number of the uh, locations that we were talking about. Mm-hmm. Um but yeah, there's definitely like a heaviness about some of these places. These these places that um, when you visit them, you can feel some. I I always feel like I don't know enough about it. That's <laughs> that's the feeling I come away with. I feel almost like ignorance toward yeah. it, and not not that I want to feel that way, but it's just I just don't feel like I'm adequately prepared to to know the impact of those places. I mean, I don't know if you have any Native American heritage at all. Um, I don't know. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, I don't, but for some reason, I've always felt like uh, like I have a connection with Native Americans. But uh, it's it's a shame that you know this the King Philip's War happened. I mean, it was the the bloodiest war ever fought in American soil, and that's you know there there obviously wasn't the casualty numbers that the Civil War had, but it was you know per per capita. Uh, 800 out of 52,000 English colonists, that's one out of every 65, died. And 3,000 out of 20,000 natives, that's three out of every 20. They all lost their lives due to the war, which makes it proportionally one of the bloodiest and costliest in the history of America. So, And, and for those who uh, don't know about King Philip's War, and I, I'd like to say shame on you, because you should know, but we didn't. Until we started doing this program, we didn't know. Because it's just, like I said, it's something that's kind of ignored in schools. Uh, but, you know, through the efforts of filmmakers like Aaron Kadju and, and numerous other people who have put together books and documentaries about it, it's starting to come more into the forefront. But uh, basically it was, you know, the English and the natives had gotten along in, 
you know, the early days of the colonies, they'd, they'd kind of lived with one another. And when the natives started running out of things that they could trade with the English, what was that? That was odd. When they started running out of things they could trade with the English, uh, they started having to give up their land. And that created a lot of hostility and a lot of tension, and it eventually culminated, and we can get into all the history of it later on, but eventually culminated in a conflict between the colonists and the natives and the eventual death of King Philip, leader of the Wampanoags. Kind of like the real world. Yeah, well, that's Bob Dole's peanut butter. <laughs> all right, well, why don't we take a break. When we come back, we will start getting in touch with all of our teams out in the fields. We'll talk to you about the locations that they're at, how they relate to the war. We'll let you know what's happening. Maybe we'll get some paranormal activity live right here on the air. And, of course, we'll also take your calls, 508-996-0500, 508-291-0500. Email spookycrew at spookysouthcoast.com, and we'll be right back with more here on Spooky South Coast. Spooky South Coast, our annual Bridgewater Triangle investigation show. And, of course, tonight's show we are concentrating on sites related to King Philip's War, the bloodiest uh, war in American history, based solely on uh, the amount of people lost in relation to the population at the time. Joining us on the line, we have Chris Balzano, who is one of the preeminent observers and researchers of all things paranormal in this area. And King Philip's War is something that has popped up in his research time and time again. So we want to bring him on to talk with us about, you know, what he's researched and what he's uh, found during his time. So, Chris, uh, thank you for joining us. We appreciate it, as always. Thank you very much for having me again. It's always good to uh, to visit with my um, now Massachusetts friends. <laughs> Well, you know, you don't have uh, you don't have the the wonderful history that you have here down in Florida. You just have uh, plaid shirts and and black ankle socks and sandals. <laughs> yeah, and a lot of uh, really really dark tans. So, um, just I just got finished uh, grocery shopping actually, so uh, I got to touch upon the uh, what uh, <laughs> what what lovely Lee County, Florida has to offer. So. <laughs> It's good to be on the phone with the civilized world. There you go. Now, uh, we 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 were talking earlier today, and we talked a lot about some of these various you know sites that we'll be uh, checking out tonight. But uh, there's as we do this show each year, and we delve deeper and deeper into the Bridgewater Triangle, it, it becomes more and more clear that. Whatever happened in King Philip's War, whatever paranormal residual evidence and, and history there is, it's directly responsible for much of the paranormal phenomena that we're, we're reporting now. Um, I, I think it has to do a lot with a cycle, uh, more than a direct cause and effect. I, mean, I think there are direct hauntings, or hauntings that have directly to do with King Philip's War and can be directly linked back, but... You know, like I put forth in Dark Woods and like I've been preaching for the past three or four years now, I also think the absolutely horrific conditions of King Philip's War in and of themselves have to do with the Bridgewater Triangle Curse. Mm-hmm. 
And I, I, I really feel that, I mean, if you go back pre-even King Philip's War, you have uh, the area, you know, not being a, a prime location for, uh, for people. They didn't want to go there. Um, and then as King Philip's War plays itself out, you have these people who, on both sides, um, would have conducted warfare in a very different way, all of a sudden, for some reason, stepping outside themselves, almost as if they were possessed in some ways. Um, and then, of course, a lot of hauntings directly related to things that happened during the King Philip's War. So I really do think that the King Philip's War is a symptom of what would be going on the Bridgewater Triangle. I say curse, but, I mean, it could be anything. You know, we really don't know what starts this. Mm-hmm. And, and you're one of the big proponents of, of expanding the borders of the Bridgewater Triangle uh, outside of, you know, what the normal definition by Lauren Coleman had been. And one of the sites that... Uh, will come into play then if you expand the triangle is where Matt Moniz and Andrew Lake are right now and we can bring them up on the line as well. They are actually out at Nine Men's Misery which is a site in where it is current Cumberland, Rhode Island uh, where nine colonists were tortured by the Narragansett Indian tribe and we will let uh, Matt explain to us a little bit more about the site. Uh, Matt, you're on with uh, us and Chris Balzano. Wow, how are we doing guys? Spooktacular. What's going on, Matthew? Not much, standing right here at the site of Nine Men's Misery. Uh, the event actually happened on March 26, so it was in 1576. Uh, there were actually ten men that were captured, one did survive. Um, but these other men were basically tortured and uh, they were mutilated, for lack of a better term, and left, left here. The colonists that lived in the area found them and uh, interred them. Uh, but it's said that their spirits still walk about these woods. And uh, let me tell you, I'm out here in the middle of the woods of Cumberland, and it's pretty dark and foreboding. So I, I can see why people would, you know, naturally have the uh, uh, you know, inclination to think something like might be jumping out in the woods. Well, There's a few animals running about, so they it, were um, easy to get spooked. There were few few battles where the natives clearly won, few uh, incidents where the natives clearly came out on top, and this is certainly one of them, to have been able to capture and, and torture uh, members of the colonial army. Um, but beyond that, there's a little bit more history uh, that I found out about Nine Men's Misery that might have something to do with some of the paranormal disturbances there as well. And I don't know if, if you're familiar with it, Matt, but you know about what happened in 1790 at that site? No, I do not. All right, let me let me share with you what I found and uh, doing a little bit of research. In 19, uh, 1790, it was disturbed by medical students led by someone named Dr. Bowen, looking for the body of one of the dead colonists, Benjamin Buckland, who was said to be unusually large with a double row of teeth. Uh, so, looking for his jawbone. Yes, they were trying to dig him up, and and they kind of disturbed that site. So I wonder if maybe that is also part of you know why it's so paranormally active as well. Well, a number of people keep breaking into what is uh, essentially a small crypt here. But the, the crypt is really a memorial. The, the remains are actually buried near the crypt. They are not interred in the crypt. So the, the site has had a history of being, you know, pillaged. And so that would be one reason in certain paranormal circles people would think that the place is you know, haunted. Right now we've got a bunch of fireflies going on, so people seeing lighted orbs and stuff like that. You know, the, 
a spooky place. I'll give, give it that, especially in you know middle of the night. Uh, w- one of the interesting things about Nine Men's Misery and about the Narragansetts is the Narragansetts did have a lot of those praying Indians, the the, the Indians who had been converted to uh, Christianity and who were fighting alongside the English. And so you have As a that. Matter of fact, one of them is buried here uh, with the Nine Men. And, and you're talking about the, the clash of beliefs. I mean, beyond just the uh, political and territorial battles between the colonists and the natives, now you're bringing in, you know, clashing political beliefs and almost like a why could you turn your back on, you know, what we always believed and what we were always taught. Um, do you think that maybe the fact that you have those converging beliefs amongst the spirits there, that that might play into why there's so much activity as well? Uh, I I'm not going to comment on belief because belief is individual to each person. Everybody has to, you know, have their own idea of what's going on. Um, but could I say it's limiting it? Hell no. Well, it, it's it's certainly a, a spot where, if anything, if any more, uh, any more obvious the the what's the word I'm looking for. The, the kind of the, the traitor, you know, the fact that these 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 were traitors to their people, uh, it's one of the spots where it's definitely obvious because here you have, you know, the praying Indians going against the the natives, and then the natives end up capturing them and torturing them just as they were colonists. So on both sides, there must have been a, a great degree of, uh, you know, a feeling of, you know, you turned your back on us. Yeah, a lot of animosity felt on sure. both sides. Agreed. And so what's going on out there tonight beyond the fireflies? I mean, I know that we had some wet weather earlier, but it seems like, you know, the skies are pretty clear now. And uh, is it conducive to an investigation? It is. Uh, as long as you have enough bug spray, you're good <laughs> out here. But uh, the weather seems to be holding up fine. We've got a uh, night vision camera up on the tripod focusing on the area. Uh, you get a highway in the background, so EVTs may be a little uh, tough to listen for, but... Other than that, it, it, it's a pretty, pretty neat place. I'll have to give it that. Well, uh, hopefully uh, you don't get eaten alive by the bugs out there. And I don't think Triple E is a is a big concern that far down. So <laughs> consider yourself lucky you didn't go to Freetown tonight. All right. All right. We'll be checking back in with you in a little while. All right. Thanks. Okay, All right. Take it easy. Bye. I should take the VIP lock off, Matt. It'll make it easier to hang up on people and call other people. Um, so why don't we get... Uh, Another group on the phone. You can call the Dart group. Now, Chris, um, obviously, as, as we were talking with, oh, we cut Chris off. Was that me? We cut Chris. All right, put Chris on the <laughs> VIP line. Okay. We'll put Chris on the VIP line. As you can tell, this is well thought out. We do this every year, and we learn new lessons each each and every time that we do it. So Matt's going to start getting everybody together. But you know, one of the things that we wanted to to portray in this is uh, that it, King Philip's War is more than just you know what we've talked about on the show. It's more than just the ghost. It's more than just the paranormal. I mean, it was an actual extremely bloody and extremely horrific conflict that doesn't get paid enough attention. Now, I have a book here in front of me. It's just one of the books from my library that I grabbed for reference tonight, but Ghosts from King Philip's War, and it's written by Edward Lodi, who is a local author. He lives in Middleborough. And does a great job writing about you know local folklore and local legends. But one of the things that I realized while glancing through this again is, and this is to no fault to Mr. Lodi, but it has a very you know Eurocentric 
feel to it. It has a very... Uh, he, he doesn't go against the natives in this book, but he seems to definitely be taking the side of the colonists. And, and that's amazing to me because everything that I've read and learned about King Philip's War makes me side with the natives. It makes me feel like they're the ones that got the raw deal, first of all, because here comes this boat, and here comes a bunch of people coming and invading you know, their, their land, which, I mean, I... Uh, I'll tell you from what my research is, when the the, Plymouth, uh, the Pilgrims landed in Plymouth, the natives had no problem letting them settle where they did because the Indians didn't want to live there. They didn't want to live that close to the water and, and live in that harsh of a spot. They were a lot deeper inland. And uh, as Chris had mentioned earlier in the program, they didn't want to deal with a lot of the areas associated with the Bridgewater Triangle, especially the Hockamock Swamp, which we'll talk about later, because they felt that that area was cursed, that that land was cursed. So the fact that you know they're willing to let the colonists come in and live in that area, that was fine. They were able to set up their their community. They were able to set up their uh, ability to, to work back and forth with each other. It's when the European colonists started encroaching upon that territory, started feeling like they had certain rights and certain justifications for, you know, pushing away what they called the savages, that there started to be issue. Uh, and then, of course, you know, as, as the natives became more political and as they became more educated, they were able to fight the colonists kind of at their own level, then uh, things were a lot different. So... All right, why don't we uh, bring Chris back in right now while Matt's working on the, the other call. All right, Chris, you're back with us? I am, I am. I, I think that, uh, just kind of going off what you were just saying, I think that it's easy to say um, that the praying Indians betrayed their people, um, but it was it was a, a, a full-on assault. I mean, it wasn't just uh, an economic thing, which was a huge part of it. In other words, you couldn't, in some parts, buy or sell unless you were a praying Indian. Mm-hmm. But some of it was genuine conversion. Um, some people heard the word, and, and for whatever reason, they converted to it. So it, it's really, it's really, um, you know, I, I think that it, it was this extreme push, uh, and, and you know, Europeans having their commerce so tightly connected with their religion in the first place, kind of made it almost, you know, they were in the wrong place. You know, they were in the wrong place at the wrong time, and, and the the Native Americans in that area had been so rampaged that they kind of had to do whatever they needed to survive. So I think some of these people, um, you know, faked it uh, and, and converted, but some of them I think genuinely, you know, felt that, you know, that they had found Jesus uh, in doing that. And then what the the really interesting thing is is that <laughs> all of these um, praying Indians ended up being kind of before they were pushed out, ended up being the people who were signing the trees and signing the things and kind of, um, um, uh, helping things um, so that things wouldn't explode, and then of course, as, as the pressure got too much, there you go. Now, now they now they were considered traitors to their people. And, and various members of, of different tribes, because there was a lot of different tribes involved in King Philip's War, even though uh, Philip was the chief of the Wampanoag tribe. Uh, but a, a lot of other tribes got involved, uh, and a lot of them were made promises that when the war was over, you know, they would have a chance to to redeem themselves and, and could kind of curry back into the favor of the colonists, but instead they were all, you know, massacred and they were all outed, uh, ousted from the community as well. But uh, one of the 
foremost areas in, in relation to the Wampanoags in this area, in the Bridgewater Triangle area, is the Wampanoag Cultural Center, which uh, was recently burned to the ground by arson uh, and just horrible tragedy. It, it was still being used for different events and different ceremonies today. And we actually have the DART team, Dartmouth Anomalies Research Team, Eric Lavoie and his gang, they're out there at the Wampanoag Cultural Center uh, in the Freetown State Forest. So let's go to them right now. Hello, Eric. Are you there, Eric? Hey, what's going on, Timmy? Hey, how you doing? All right. Are you now? You're at the cultural center now. Yep, we're actually here right now. Um, it's just uh, just two of us. And, and um, yourself, I'm sorry, go ahead. yourself, and and Jay Bashad. And uh, you're at the site which recently burned down. And Matt Matt Mo, uh, Matt Costa showing me a picture of it here on the internet, and it's just it's horrible. Um, what's what's left of what was once a beautiful center for the Wampanoag people, and and now it's just nothing but charred remains. Absolutely, absolutely. And that's kind of uh, that's kind of where we kind of focused a lot of our EVPs on too. We actually set up a couple of um, we set up a night vision camera, and we set up a couple of EVP sessions, and uh, just trying to ask, you know, you know, was it can you tell us if it was a male or a female that maybe burnt this down? Can you tell us if it was a, if it was a mistake or it was an accident? So we're trying to hit every angle that we can to see if we can maybe come up with an EVP that will give us some direction of what maybe happened. Yeah, because at last check they still hadn't figured out who was responsible for it. That's right. And and uh, how, how long ago was this, this fire? Uh, just a couple of weeks ago. I think it was uh, three weeks ago, three or four weeks. It was it was actually the week before the 4th of July because I spoke to, to Chief Alves uh, on the day before the 4th of July, so it was the, the Saturday before the 4th of July. Oh, it was. Okay. So it's it's less than a month, uh, only just a couple of weeks. Now, Chris, you've, you've spent a lot of time at the uh, Cultural Center, uh, but it, it's not, uh, it's, not a, it's a site that has long been associated with Wampanoag people, but the actual structure that was there itself, that's only been a, a recent addition, right? Right. That wasn't there, you know, back during King Philip's War or even beyond. I mean, that really kind of came into... If I'm not mistaken, it's actually uh, converted, um, kind of converted property of the um, the civilian corps uh, that was training there, uh, and kind of stuff left over from then. So this one really that you're talking, I'm not quite sure of the date, but I believe you're actually talking more along the lines of like the 1930s, 1940s, when that when the original foundations of those things were there. Yeah, I were, think you know started. The, the building itself, and I think Matt Cost is looking at the story now, but the building itself that burned, that was only recently built in, what, the 70s, 80s, 90s, something like that? Matt Costa, do you see that there? No, it says uh, 1990s. Oh, sorry, 1990s? Okay, yeah, so, I mean, but still, I mean, we're talking, talking about... about a, the, you're talking about the Welcome Center. Yes. Yeah, it, yeah, the Welcome Center is really new. And have you have you seen the photos yourself, Chris? I've not seen the, the burnt photos of it. Like, I kind of don't want to. You know, there's... Yeah, there's where, where things progress and things have kind of moved on from the bridge, you know, in the in the Freetown State Forest, I kind of want to have a snapshot of it the way that I last saw it, which because it was really special for me the last few times I was there, and especially some of the evidence we got and investigations we did. So I haven't looked at those pictures yet. That's uh, maybe too close to the event. Yeah, you, right you might want to hold off on that. Eric, what's the feeling out there tonight? I mean, is there kind of a heaviness associated with this area, or or does it feel like you know, maybe the, the spirits are just out there with you. I don't know. Right now, I'll tell you, it's, it's pretty peaceful. I mean, it's a beautiful night. Stars are out. It's not pouring on us the way they thought it was going to be. And, uh, no, it's um, it's actually kind of peaceful. Um, we we tried to do some K2 sessions, and we really didn't get too much on that. Um, but as in, like, a um, an overwhelming presence, 
no, we're actually, it's very peaceful. And um, there's actually a few little paths that lead us into, I'm not sure, I don't know if it was like a ceremonial spot. It looks like a big camp, big, uh, big circle, about 30 feet. Mm-hmm. And uh, we're actually going to head over there pretty much within about five minutes and uh, see what we can get over there too. But uh, no, this area is, um, it's sad. It's kind of really sad. I mean, this this chair is kind of sitting up by itself and there's kind of like dinner plates and things like that. And it's, Horrible. And, and Eric, we were talking earlier this afternoon about this, but I had been afraid when when this arson first happened that it was going to lead to a shutdown of the forest for paranormal investigators, for rangers to be in there telling people that they can't go in there and ghost hunt anymore. Um, but we were talking earlier about how you know maybe the paranormal community can kind of be the safeguards against something like this happen again. No, I, absolutely, and, and I and I, you know just even for yourself, I appreciate you giving us the opportunity to uh, be part of this because it is something that's kind of a it's special and, and it's sad. It's special, and there's other groups trying to go out and do the same thing and try to find out evidence of, uh, you know, what happened during the uh, the King Phillips War. Well, and of course, we we thank you for taking part, and we're sorry that it took so long for us to get you out in the field for us. <laughs> hey, no problem. No you, problem. You guys can go out there and get bit by mosquitoes and stuff. Matt Coss and I will stay here in the studio. <laughs> All right. <laughs> All right, Eric. You stay safe, and we'll check back in with you in a little bit. All right, Tim. Take care. Take care. Bye. Bye. And, and Chris, I understand your point of view of not wanting to, to see what has happened there, but uh, imagine how the actual Wampanoags themselves, the Sona Band of Wampanoags, uh, must have felt. And I know that they're taking donations and, and they're setting up a P.O. box where people can send checks and they can kind of, you know, take a little bit of, I don't want to say ownership of, of what happened there, but maybe they can feel like they're contributing more to the remembrance of this culture by, you know, chipping in 20 50 100 bucks if they can. Well, that's if they're starting up a fund, that's something I definitely am going to, uh, going to post up uh, on the front page of Massachusetts Paranormal Crossroads then so that people can have an opportunity to give back. Excellent. And, 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 any, and I'll say right now, anybody that wants to make a donation uh, and, and they don't have, uh, you know, the Internet to, to wait around to find out where the P.O. box is, we'll make sure that when we get it, we, we read it over the air. But if you want to come down here and drop off a check anytime while we're on the air, just make it out to Chief Ken Alves. Uh, if you make it out to Ken Alves, I'm, I'm sure they'll be able to get it. And I'll get in touch with him and find out what the progress is on that as well. So why don't we get uh, the Bay State Paranormal Group on the line, Matt? Uh, and while you, you're doing that, Chris, I'll ask you, uh, do you feel that with this, there's kind of a newfound uh, identification for people with their Native American tribes? And I don't want to be cynical enough to say, you know, because everybody can get a casino, but we do seem to see a a kind of a, a re- reverting of people going back to their native culture and being willing to embrace that now when for a long time it was like, yeah, I'm like one sixteenth nipmuc. You know, it was something where people didn't really talk about it that much, but now they seem to be embracing it. And do you think as that happens there will be a newfound respect and a newfound understanding for King Philip's War? I think there will be. And I think the interesting thing about it, once again, to touch on the religion part, so the Chinese isn't, uh, isn't on the line with us, I think a lot of that sparks from a religious kind of emptiness. Um, you know, if you're if you're um, you know you're, if you're 25% Wampanoag, you're 75% something else. Chances are you're 75% something that was some denomination of Judeo-Christian religion. And what happens is people kind of feel an emptiness with that. And then when they kind of look at Native American culture and the spirituality of that, they kind of seem connected. And so that sparks them to learn more. 
Um, and the great thing about that is that then sparks them to learn more about the history uh, of whatever tribe that, that they were involved in, which usually means that they get involved with the history of a lot of different tribes. Um, because once you kind of get research one, you all of a sudden start to kind of open up to other ones. And so I think kind of going back on that, you're going to have, you know, a little bit of a, of a rewriting of uh, King Philip's War as people start to kind of feel empty with the resources they go to because a lot of them are very much slanty. You know, history is told by the people who won. Um, and so it, it's very, you know, there's not a lot out there that kind of gives a 100% genuine, straightforward approach to it. Um, hopefully, you know, that's something that Aaron's going to uh, tackle with, with, uh, with the first Patriot uh, when he when he finally completes that. But I think, you know, it, it goes kind of one way of, you know, these, this horrible picture of the settlers who were there, um, and then the other way of, you know, the, 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 um, you know the, the savages who have to be beaten back, you know, for, for progress to happen. And there's it's really, you know, somewhere in the middle. And that sometimes, you know, uh, extremes or, or, or increments of, of all those things. And so, you know, really no one has ever told the real story um, of this settlement and of and of King Philip's War and kind of how you know the Wampanoags do you know Wampanoags have blood on their hands as well with with things that went on there. So um, I, that's the kind of thing I'm looking forward to. You know, let's try to get Howard Zinn to kind of go to a <laughs> into, into into Massachusetts or southeastern Massachusetts and, and get some research done. Well, I've seen the trailer for the first Patriots. It looks great. I cannot wait to see the actual film itself. But a lot of people are probably hearing us say, you know, King Philip, King Philip, and they, they don't understand why we're talking about a, a Native American that has an English name and an English uh, crown almost to, to to what his leadership was. But he was uh, his native name was Metacomet, and he was the son of Massasoit. Now, if you remember your pilgrim history and what you learned about Plymouth and that settlement, you know all about Massasoit, and, and Metacom was one of his sons. And he actually had a daughter as well. Uh, her name was Amy, uh, A-M-I-E, and a lot of she actually married uh, uh, somebody who was known as the Black Sachem, uh, Tispaquin, and they had descendants uh, who lived on past the conflict, and a lot of that family has been buried in the Wampanoag Royal Cemetery in Lakeville, out on 105, and we have the Bay State Paranormal Group, uh, they're out there right now investigating the Royal Wampanoag Cemetery to see if they can make a connection with some of the descendants of Massasoit and the relatives of King Philip. And let's go to Rachel out there right now with the Bay State Paranormal Group. Good evening. How are you? Hi, good. How are you? Oh, we're spooktacular. Uh, now, how is uh, everything going out there in the cemetery? Now, I, I should have warned you guys ahead of time if you hadn't taken it into account. You know, it is we're getting into triple E season, <laughs> and the mosquitoes, I'm sure, are out down there in Lakeville. Uh, yes, they are. They're all out in full force out here. <laughs> so hopefully you guys brought plenty of uh, deep woods off. Yes, we've, we've all uh, deep uh, woods off each other. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's better than what you normally off to each other, so there That's you go. That's true. That's true. Now, uh, w- Give the people uh, who have never been there, a lot of people might have driven by the Royal Wampanoag Cemetery because you see a nice sign there when you're driving by, but uh, for those who have never really gotten out of the car and spent time there, just describe the scene there for people. Okay, we came here about um, 9 o'clock, maybe 8.30, and walked around. It actually just looks like woods with little piles of rocks in various spots. And if you go to towards the back, which is maybe 100 yards, there's a, a big drop and um, a pond behind there. So it's actually really pretty here. 
um, but you wouldn't know that it was a cemetery because it's not like your traditional cemetery where you see the, the big giant headstones. You see just little little mounds of rocks with some little offerings that people have left, like seashells and um, medicine bags and fruit. And, of course, we always say that, you know, my house is built on a Native American burial ground, and, and you know, that's kind of the story that a lot of people will say when they find out that, you know, their home is haunted. They'll trace back the history, and, oh, sure enough, you know, there was a Native American burial ground, and Chris has talked about us about it with us in the past here on the show, but this whole area was a Native American burial ground because, as we said at the top of the show, there were such high numbers of deaths. Uh, with the Natives, it was three out of every 20 that's 3,000 dead Native Americans that they, they were kind of just buried wherever. Uh, but I know uh, from reading here in Edward Lodi's book, the last person buried in the Royal Wampanoag Cemetery was Lydia Tuspequin, who was a, a descendant of Tuspequin and Amy, and she drowned in 1812. So, you know, s- since then there's been different changes in the burial practices, I'm sure, but I'm sure up until that point they still buried them in the traditional Wampanoag fashion. That seems to be how those graves look to you, like they're more traditional native and not anything ornate? Yes, there's there's actually no ornate, uh, there's nothing ornate about this um, cemetery. We're actually standing at Lydia's gravesite right now, okay. and hers appears to be the only one with something that even remotely looks like a traditional headstone. I mean, even the sign that's right out in front uh, for people, it's very understated, um, it, which, you know, naturally it should be. It's a burial ground. It should be a place for, for reverence. Uh, but the fact that it's still there alone is impressive enough to me because so many of, of the native burial grounds have been kind of plowed over and developed over, and the fact that that one's been able to, to stay intact is, is pretty fascinating. Yeah, yeah, it, it really is. And it's, you know, it's, it's great to come out here and look at, at something different. You know, this is a, is a whole different culture from what you would see just even a mile up the road. So what kind of equipment did you guys bring with you tonight? Let's see. We have um, K2 meters, uh, EMF, um, digital voice recorders, camera, uh, and our psychic window. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, having Linda there will be a big yeah. help. Yeah, Linda Marie's here, yeah. She's a big help. I've seen her in action uh, when we investigated the Braintree Town Hall, and and uh, she definitely can can be another tool in the toolbox, as we say, because she makes a good connection, and then all of a sudden the uh, the other equipment starts documenting that. So. Yes. Yeah. Exactly. Now, like, sorry. Go ahead. Yes. No, go ahead. Uh, I was going to say, uh, what what is your plan um, for while you're investigating there? Are you going to try and uh, speak to the spirits? Are you going to try and uh, open up a dialogue with them? Or are you going to kind of depend on Linda Marie to make a connection? Well, we actually did. We we walked around the cemetery. We we first came in, you know, very respectfully. gave our offerings because, you know, this is a sacred spot, and we come in knowing that it's a sacred spot. Um, so we, we kind of looked around and um, decided where we were going to be, and, while we were standing, actually, we, it just so happened that, you know, Linda Marie had noticed a little um, fern moving about, and it was, there's, you know, there's no wind up here or anything, and, you know, she just made a connection. So, you know, we all stood over there, but, you know, we're walking around in different spots. It's not a very big cemetery, so we're just walking around in different spots and, you know, using each of our own equipment. 
I, I mean, generally we don't really encourage people to investigate cemeteries, uh, mainly because it upsets a lot of people, and we kind of call it the, you know, kind of the kitty waiting pool uh, almost of paranormal investigation. It's like, yeah, don't waste your time in the cemetery. You can go out there and get thrown around if you go somewhere else. But when it comes to the Royal Wampanoag Cemetery, it's an interesting location because it's one of the only spots where we can guarantee that there are uh, bodies buried that are related to King Philip and that are, are descendants of, of that tribe and that family. It, it's because, you know, we don't even know where King Philip himself ended up. Uh, it's one of the few spots where we can make a, co- a connection. So, I mean, I guess my best advice to you while you're out there is to, you know, maybe ask questions uh, for your EVP sessions and through Linda Marie, you know, related to maybe finding out some of these mysteries that are associated with the war. You know, where is Philip's head? Uh, where are the wampum belts? Which I know, Chris Balzano, you'd love to, to find out where those are eventually. <laughs> yeah, I mean, <laughs> I've been, uh, you know, searching for those for the past five years, so I haven't gone anywhere. I got a feeling they're going to turn up in somebody's attic at some point. Probably. You know, probably. Uh, Benjamin Church's family passed it on to somebody else. And uh, actually, from, from what I understand, um, let me just go to my notes. Uh, I know that the belt did eventually uh, go to somebody else uh, in, in hopes to bring it to the king. And that's it never made it to the king. So it's there's a good chance it's somewhere here. And if you guys happen to stumble upon it while you're out there in the Royal Wampanoag Cemetery, you know, please bring it back. Yeah, you guys will be the first to know. <laughs> there you go. All right, we'll check in with you in a little bit and stay safe out there and uh, keep applying that deep woods off. <laughs> All right, thank you. All right, have a good night. Bye-bye. Right, yeah, Chris, uh, let's let's talk a little bit about that, about, uh, you know, what happened to King Philip and what happened uh, to his people as a result of the war. Uh, he was actually executed, he was killed, and his head was cut off and brought to Plymouth to be uh, shown as, as, a, as a spoil of war for the colonists. Is that what happened? Yep, uh, just kind of like, you know, the traditional English, put the head on a spike and uh, just to discourage other people from doing it except for... They had no London Bridge, so uh, the closest thing they had was Plymouth. And then from there... I I think it's also important that people remember that in in terms of, you know, this was a a war really sparked by the Plymouth colony. Um, And whereas Mass Bay did, you know, eventually have to kind of lend forces and lend support, it comes from within kind of, you know, what is the Bridgewater Triangle, not necessarily from outside from the area of Boston where kind of Mass Bay was um, was founded. So that's, it's important to remember that it went back not to Boston, not to the, the kind of, you know, cradle of civilization in New England that had already kind of been established. It went back to Plymouth, which was the kind of the secondary sun at that point. And from there, we don't know where it went. There's so many rumors as to where it could be. Uh, some stories place it buried underneath the front porch of a friend of uh, King Philip's in Taunton a family by the name of Leonard uh, who owned an iron forge that, that helped supply them with weapons. Supposedly his head is buried under their front porch, and uh, then others have said that it's located somewhere between you know Bristol and Taunton. Uh, there's so many potential locations for his head, and uh, I guess a head was found years ago, and the testing showed that it was Native American, but nobody can be sure if it was actually Philip's head. Um, I, I think that the wampum belt is probably something I'd rather stumble upon more than just the head. Yeah, I mean, you know, I've stumbled upon heads before, and uh, they're not that fun. But uh, I mean, yeah, yeah, I think that Chief I think Diamond that really, Phillips. 
once you kind of, if you were to discover the head, it'd be like, okay, well, there's King Philip's head. Now we know. And that's kind of one mystery unlocked. But the wampum belt holds much more of a mystique and so many more mysteries because uh, a Wampanoag who is walking around today or someone who even has Wampanoag blood, their history is the history of a Christianized Wampanoag mm -hmm. um, because they were the ones who were writing down the history. And, and that's very clear to show. And I always use it as an example uh, in Pukwudgie lore kind of changes once the Wampanoags become Christianized. That wampum belt would be the genuine, you know, unwritten down, kind of the unscripted history, and that's how they pass along through world tradition. Once that oral tradition kind of goes through a filter that's not traditionally Native American, it obviously loses something. So what you have is, you know, the, the history that we have now and the culture that they have now is really an Americanized uh, or, or an English, you know, a Britishized uh, version of of what their what their life was really like before the colonists got here. And and one of the sad realities of the the wampum belt is the fact that uh, wampum, which was made for for those who don't know what what wampum is, um, and I only know because I looked it up. But it's it's made from you know the shells of quahogs and different shellfish and different and they were made into colored beads and it'd be strung together and they'd be made into these ornate shapes. Uh, and according to um, you know historical reports, uh, King Philip's wampum belts had very rich. The, the belt itself was kind of wrapped and taken apart. And there was a lot of individual beads, individual wampum associated with it. And there's a good chance, unfortunately, that when the, when the belt did fall into colonists' hands, that it may have been taken apart and pieced off and, and used that way as currency. So let, let's hope that's not the case. Let's hope it's sitting in the, you know, in the English archives over in the, uh, you know, over in Buckingham Palace and they just don't realize what they're sitting on yet. Yeah, I mean, people need to remember it was a teaching tool. And as a teacher, you know, I can tell you straight off, like, you can't just hit someone with learning one way. What you do is you do several different things. And so these um, brightly decorated uh, bees or wampums were used as a visual kind of stimulus. Like, okay, now I'm touching this bead. Now I'm going to tell the story of what this bead represents. And so it taught people two different ways and helped them remember the history. So... You know, once again, it's, it's almost like symbolic. You know, if if, if the, the belt itself was kind of ravaged and taken apart, that's little. I mean, that's literally and figuratively little bits of their history pieced away and shipped away. And we're coming up on the news break here, and I know there's still people out in the field that we haven't connected with. We still have to talk to Wailing City Ghosts, uh, who are out at Anawan Rock, and they've they've made a special connection with Anawan Rock, and we want to make sure that, um, you know, we keep sending them there because if the spirits are going to react to them and, and interact with them, we like to keep that going. Also, uh, our friend Christina is out in the Freetown State Forest as well, and we're going to talk to Bob Ethier in a few minutes after the break. Uh, he actually went out to the Hockamock Swamp earlier today uh, because it's just too dangerous and, and too scary of a place to go at night. It's it's We wouldn't feel safe sending somebody out there at night. He went earlier today, so he's going to check in with us and tell us what he he found out there, and he's done years worth years worth of research into the Hakamak. So we'll talk about all that and more when we come back after the news here on Spooky South Coast.
Welcome back to Spooky South Coast. Tim Weisberg here, along with the silent assassin, Matt Costa. Science advisor Matt Moniz is out in the field, and we'll be checking back with him in just a little bit. Uh, we've actually got quite a few investigators out in the field tonight uh, as part of our Bridgewater Triangle annual investigation show. And we're going to be checking in with each of them during the course of the evening. Uh, there's a few we still haven't gotten to yet, but don't worry, we will. Uh, it's just so much information to share tonight with the audience. Uh, and while we're sharing information, we want to remind everybody that if you'd like to sign up for our Twitter feed, you can go to twitter.com slash spookysc, and you can find out all about the show. Uh, as soon as we know who's going to be on, we'll send it out on Twitter, and you'll be able to find out that way. And, of course, spookysouthcoast.com, that is the mothership for all things spooky. And, uh, you know, Matt, we've got some, some events coming up planned that we've been talking to some different locations, and we, we've been mentioning it on the show. And if we can make this stuff happen, first of all, A, we're going to be very busy people. Yes. But, B, we're going to get to bring uh, people into some really unique and interesting locations with, with great paranormal history that they might not have been able to get to uh, otherwise. And I, I have one that I even have to tell you about off the air oh, that uh, <laughs> is new to the repertoire here. So uh, it's coming up uh, in late August. We're going to try and maybe even do the show there. Yeah, so. some of these locations... Uh haven't really been investigated by anybody else, which is really cool. And to get the chance so. to go in there, and you know, we're, we're going to charge for it, but the money goes to take care of these locations, you know? So if we say to you, you know, you can come and investigate the Fearing Tavern in Wareham for $35, yeah. you know, that money is going, for the most part, to the Wareham Historical Society, and then, you know, the, whatever doesn't go to them is going back to us to be able to fund more events. So uh, nobody's getting rich off of this, except no. rich in history and rich in experience. <laughs> And uh, for us, it's rich and fun and a way to get out there and meet the audience. So we'll have more information about a lot of those. But one person uh, who has actually investigated uh, some of those locations with us is on the line with us now. Bob Ethier joins us. Uh, and, Bob, you had a chance to head out to the Hockamock Swamp earlier today? Yes, I did. And the Hockamock Swamp, uh, we, we've talked about it here in the past, but you know, it, it, the Hockamock is Wampanoag for Devil's Swamp, Devil's Land, and th this is not a very friendly place to go, and you know, you're a braver man than I, Bob. <laughs> well, it's always been fascinating to me. I started researching this in the 80s, and I came up with a few articles written in the Boston Globe about uh, the Hockamock Swamps, and... Um, one of the pamphlets I got about that swamp was, uh, uh, I guess, some of the some Indian translations are heard to uh, or translated into land where the spirits dwell. Mm -hmm. And um, there's been a lot of expeditions in there from Brown University investigations where they found Indian artifacts and dug out canoes and and different things. And it's always fascinated me, especially the stories that you hear. Or that were in the Boston Globe, and, and some people relate to uh, some exciting animals and giant birds and giant snakes and cats. And you know, I've never seen any of these things, but uh, I've never ventured as far as I'd like to. Well, today I, I sorry, go ahead. That? Today I was in uh, Bridgewater in Easton at the Bridgewater Easton Line along the uh, Black uh, Brook. And uh, the Nip and Nucket restaurant up off of 104 in Bridgewater, and that's interesting because uh, I've done some research about the Nip and Nucket, and there's been some stories 
in the past written about that particular pond. There's a couple small islands on there, and they're said to have contained orangutans, or people have spotted orangutans there. Oh, wow. On the island, or creatures with uh, light-colored fur. Um, I also have a story related to me by a friend of mine whose wife was traveling along 104 at dusk one evening. She swears she saw an Indian chief in full headdress standing on the water with a glow around it. Mm, oh. So pretty interesting. De- yeah, definitely. And Chris Balzano is on the line uh, with us as well. And, Chris, I know that you spent some time in the Hockamock and had some experiences out there. Yeah, I mean, everything, excuse me, everything I've always uh, had happen there is so much more um, on the weird side than on the paranormal side. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I really think that, you know, the Hockamock is a representation of paranormal things, but then also the fact that there's just a lot that we don't understand um, about nature and, and about kind of what might be out there in terms of animals or energy, natural energy. Um, so I, I really, the Hockamock Swamp is a really difficult place to conduct an investigation, so my hat's off to anyone that does that. Well, Bob, beyond just wanting to investigate it, he wants to go out there and canoe it. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty difficult because where we went today off the of 24, you can get to the brook and uh, the town river, but you got to make it to the Snake River, which is where my main um, plans have been to go through. And the trouble is it's so wet there, there's no no highland or upland for you to stand on or to spend the night on. I guess most of it would be spent in whatever canoes or kayaks you bring in there. But certainly it's um, because of the reports of different, like Chris said, it's a very strange area. I don't know that any of it's paranormal, but uh, certainly there's things out there that people have seen that uh, don't make any sense. Well, there there needs to be kind of an eye of the storm uh, for all this activity that's happening within the Bridgewater Triangle, and everybody points to the Hockamock Swamp as being, you know, the center, the kind of the vortex, the spot where everything kind of converges. So maybe there's a, a lack of paranormal activity there, maybe, but the fact that everything else is swirling around it, that's kind of the epicenter of everything. Yeah. Everyone but me. Every, I'm sorry? Everyone but me considers it the heart. You don't consider it the heart? Oh, no, not at all. Well, what's the heart in your eyes? Or, do, oh, or does it not to need me. to have one? <laughs> no, I think it's, uh, to me it's more, much more Freetown than it is the Hockamock Swamp. Well, and geographically speaking, the Hockamock was, you know, the nice centerpiece of the original triangle. But as it's grown, right. you know, the Hockamock's kind of off to the corner now. Uh, I mean, the other, the other part of that that I think, though, is really that, you know, there doesn't seem to be a convergence of paranormal-type things there. There have been cryptids reported. Um, there have been other things reported there, but not a lot of ghosts, not a lot of um, things such as zombies or, or, or smaller creatures like pakwajis. And so I really think, you know, to represent everything that kind of makes the Bridgewater Triangle the Bridgewater Triangle, Freetown might be a better example. It's not just because I wrote a book about it. <laughs> Dark Woods, Cults, Crime, and Paranormal in the Freetown State Forest, available now. But, uh, uh, Bob, you're out there today, and I'll say one paranormal thing that happened is the weather held, which yeah. is not what we were expecting to have happen. Well, it was a beautiful day. I, I happened to run into, uh, on one of the paths I was on, I ran into some people from the fishing game who were giving a tour out there, and it was like an Audubon thing. saw a lot of animals. The river was very high, especially due to all the rain last night. It was hard to get into the sides to check the tracks or anything like that. 
couldn't get to any riverbank. It was so swollen, and it was very, very thick. The growth, if you're going to do any type of investigation or journey through there to research anything, it has to be in the spring where the growth and the uh, underbrush are not so thick. You couldn't see literally five feet into some of the places I was in. I did see a little fawn, and uh, it seemed to be separated from uh, his, his uh, parents or whatever, and... Uh, uh, I watched it for a little while. Didn't see. I'm sure there was a mother or a doe waiting in the area. Well, maybe maybe Bigfoot or one of the Thunderbirds got to them first. Yeah, maybe. But and of course now that if they go through with the planned commuter rail uh, extension uh, that would come down to the South Coast area, that's going to go right through the Hockamock Swamp. They're looking at that as prime, you know, commuter rail land. So it'll be interesting to see how that affects the area, not only from a wetlands and a conservation perspective, but from a paranormal perspective as well. Yeah, I would think it would be a travesty if that happened. I really do. All right, Paul. Well, thank you very much for checking in. We appreciate you going out there, and, and I look forward to uh, maybe someday getting up the courage to walk out there on my own. And Well, not on my own. You're going with me. Well, you know, if you want to go on this thing in the spring with us, you're welcome to go, and uh, hopefully we'll come up with some evidence finally. All right. Thank you for having me on the show. It's a great show as usual, and... Uh, uh, I'm the first first time caller for me, and uh, but a long time listener, and you're doing a great job, and I appreciate the service. Well, thank you very much, and we'll talk soon. All right, take care. Have a good night. Bye bye. You too. That is Bob Ethier. He was out in the Hockamock Swamp earlier today, and and all right, Chris. So it's not the heart of the activity anymore, but you got to admit it's it's still the place that is kind of the. I don't want to say the Holy Grail, but it's like the place where everybody wants to get out and go because so many people are afraid to venture in there because of the reliance on things like cell phones, which don't really work out there, and uh, the fact that you are quite remote. So e even though it may not be the heart of it anymore, it's still probably one of the most uh, notorious spots in the Bridgewater Triangle. Yeah, I think notorious is probably the, the best way to describe it. And, you know, if you, if you have your slant on the Bridgewater Triangle... Um, you can find it there. You know, UFOs, cryptozoology. If that's your your uh, your bag, you know, <laughs> that's the place. That's the place to be in the Bridgewater Triangle is the Hockamock Swamp. All right. Well, we're going to take a break, and when we come back, we'll start checking in with some of our other investigators. Uh, so stay tuned. We'll be right back with more here on Spooky South Coast. Beaming from the studios of AM 1420 WBSF into the night and beyond. Here's more of Spooky South Coast. All right, welcome back to Spooky South Coast. Well, that was a quick technical fix. Uh -huh. Thank you, Craig, for recording the show as always, because uh, we had an incident here at the Spooky Studio where the uh, audio recording kind of crapped out on us. So uh, we will be looking forward to Craig uh, supplying us with the audio so we can make sure we get it. You know, it figures this would happen. I made the promise, and now that we were caught up on all the shows, that I was going to edit them really quickly yep. and post them up. And last week we were perfect. We edited the show and posted it before we even left the studio. And uh, then, of course, tonight I go and I plug my laptop into the wrong outlet. Not my fault, folks. I had it plugged in. I made sure it was plugged in on the side <laughs> of the laptop. I just happened to plug it into the one half of an outlet here in the spooky studio that does not work. So I should have known something was up when uh, the screen started going off. That's right. Ken Pittman wouldn't have plugged it into the wrong computer, uh, into the wrong outlet, and uh, if it crapped out on him, he would have kicked its ass. 
All right. <laughs> Welcome back to Spooky South Coast. Uh, Tim Weisberg here, along with the silent assassin, Matt Cosser. We are talking about the Bridgewater Triangle, about sites related to King Philip's War, and uh, we have Chris Balzano on the line with us. He is the author, as he said before, of Dark Woods, Cult Crime and the Paranormal in the Freetown State Forest, and he's also been following up uh, on his website, masscrossroads.com. Uh, all these stories, all these tales and legends of the different things related to King Philip's War. And one of those spots, one of those locations, is Anawan Rock. Anawan was the top field general for King Philip, for Metacom, uh, during this war. And after King Philip had been killed, Anawan made his way back to Rehoboth, and he tried to hide out at this rock, uh, which is you know now famously known as Anawan's Rock. And that's uh, where essentially the English captured him even though the reports tell us that there wasn't really much of a, a fight, uh, what happened was uh, he had kind of made arrangements with Benjamin Church that he would be uh, kept alive after he was captured, and then against Church's protests, the English mutilated him, uh, murdered him anyway. Uh, basically, they have, this is the way that they had the natives show they were worthy of being part of the, the colonial uh, contingent, is they would have them stand before a firing squad. And that would show their medal, and then they would show them the medal, or at least the musket ball. That's what would happen. So, uh, Chris, uh, you know, is that pretty much the story of Anawan in a, in a nutshell? Yes. Uh, also, it should be known that I, uh, I also did write the book Ghosts of the Bridgewater Triangle, uh, yes, simply yes. because it's, uh, it's relevant to tonight's discussion. But, yeah, that's, that's also the place where the wampum belt that we talked about earlier was taken. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it really is the ultimate kind of symbol of betrayal of the King Philip's War and the kind of relationship between the, the colonists and uh, the Wampanoags. And joining us out there at Anwan Walk is, is Luann of Wailing City Ghosts. And uh, you, yourself and Gabby are out there uh, trying to make a connection with the spirits as you have in the past. And we were just talking off air, and you said that they were a little touchy-feely tonight. That they are. Uh, we got here about 10 o'clock, and there's tons of deer out here in the woods, and there, there is a lot of traffic. I think audio might be a little tough to come by tonight with the amount of noise that we have from, you know, just the road with the cars going back and forth. But um, almost immediately when we got here, um, they seemed to be interested in my camera case. And it dawned on me that this must be something that looks like it would be useful to them because I got a good couple of tugs on my camera case. Um, and probably about 20 minutes after that, there was actually something touching the top of my head on the left side. And there weren't any tree branches above me. I, I actually asked, asked Gabby to check. I was like, hey, is there a tree branch above me? Well... I apologize that we don't have with us the audio uh, that you had supplied us from your previous trip out there. We'll do it on a separate show when we have time to actually play it over and again and, and analyze it uh, with you. We'll have you come down in the studio and we'll we'll do it that way. But um, you've definitely had activity happen there before in that location, and you've had different sounds that you've been able to record. One of the frequent stories is uh, that there will be a Native American spirit that will say, uh, if I'm pronouncing this correctly, uh, Iutash, which they believe is uh, stand and fight or stand firm, something along those lines. And it kind of belies what happened there where, you know, Anawan kind of gave up rather easily to the colonial army and instead of commanding his troops to stand and fight, and a lot of the stories around Anawan Rock are, are based on the idea that 
Anawan feels uh, kind of like he made the wrong choice and he feels remorseful for the decisions that he made. Is that the kind of feeling that you get when you're out there? Do you feel that kind of remorsefulness coming through? I wouldn't say I feel remorseful. Um, I do feel a lot of respect for the Wampanoag spirits. Mm -hmm. Um, But to me, I don't think he really had any other choice. I mean, if they had stood here and fought, they would have died here. You know, they were outnumbered. They didn't have supplies. They didn't have weapons. And, I mean, I'm not full-blooded. Indian. I mean, I have a little bit of Iroquois, and for them to come up here and to call us Ketumpog, to call us friends, I mean, to me, I think it's forgiveness. You know, um, to me, I I think that the the Wampanoags were a little bit different from what, you know, white people traditional beliefs are, and I think that they really believe that they are here to be guidance for the future generations and you know to call us Ketumpog to say we're friends is is that holding a grudge doesn't you know, sound I don't see them that way there's also uh, the belief too that you know Captain Church uh, had, had firmly believed that uh, Anna Juan and the others who had, had agreed to come and, and surrender uh, that he was of the understanding that they would be taken care of too and that he was upset with the way that they were treated afterwards. So, I mean, maybe that they don't they don't feel that type of betrayal because they realize now, you know, in death that, hey, he did do everything he could to save us. Uh, but to, to know that it's the last stand of the Wampanoags in this battle, the last, uh, the last spot where, uh, the, the, basically the place where the war ended, and it's marked as such. I mean, does that kind of add to the the reason why they might be sticking around that spot, why they might be attached to that location? I would say definitely. I mean, this was the last place where they were actually still free. You know, they did kill most of the warriors that they captured here, but a lot of them were sold into slavery. So when they left here, a lot of them lost their freedom completely. This was their last free refuge, you know. So... I mean that's one of the one of the things that I thought of, um, you know, when when reading about Anawan Rock and and knowing about the Eutosh and maybe that's kind of just as you said, it's guidance for those who are there. Maybe it's advice. It's not a a replay of what Anawan might have said to his to his soldiers there, but maybe instead it's his advice. You know, don't give in as we gave in because freedom is too precious to, to put into somebody else's hands. I mean, I'm just speculating. That, that makes a lot of sense. It really does. Stand firm, stand and fight. You know, we are still alive. Keep fighting. And, you know, uh, you know, and a lot of the other ahead, um, reports of ghosts that are there are not of being attacked or of something violent, but of these uh, phantom ghost fires, which kind of feel like, you know, they're still uh, encamped there. Mm-hmm. Um, they're still waiting for their opportunity to kind of stand and fight. So that would also reflect in a lot of the other uh, ghost uh, stories that are coming out of there. It's kind of like the uh, the paranormal version of Braveheart, you know, where they can take our lives, they can't take our freedom, only they're just, <laughs> they have to say it after they've already had it taken. So. <laughs> now just paint your face blue and then ride around on a horse and you'll be all set. 
Well, uh, uh, I don't know. It sounds pretty mushy out there in the woods where the deers are walking. I think me and my horse would crash. <laughs> well, we're, uh, we'll check back in with you in a little bit, Luann, and uh, definitely before the end of the program, and we'll find out if there's anything picking up. But obviously, you know, it's one of those cases where we're glad we sent you because they, they recognize you and they welcome you, and they're quite interested in, in your appearance there. So don't be a stranger to them. <laughs> Go back well, often. I'm trying not to. I told them, go ahead and touch me. Just be gentle. <laughs> and be appropriate. It's yeah, a, it's well, a family I show. They were very appropriate. They went so I think they really liked the camera case. I wish I had an extra one. I'm sure it would make a great case for tools and weapons and things. But, no, they, they're totally appropriate. I, I do feel a lot of trust for them. All right. Well, stay safe out there. Hopefully they won't throw me off the rock now. (laughs) (laughs) Stay safe out there. We'll check back with you in a bit. Okay. Thanks. Thanks. I didn't mean to cut her off there, but uh, Matt, why don't you check in with Christina and uh, we'll we'll get in touch with her because it's you know they they were getting down there a little bit late and they should be all settled in now. Chris, one of the things that uh, uh, Craig Anderson, who runs OurHistoryProject.com, he did a great series with uh, Aaron Kadju, who's filmed the first Patriots will be forthcoming, uh, but they did uh, I think it was four or five episodes where it's just phenomenal stuff, getting really into the deep minutia of King Philip's War, and one of the things that Craig called in he wanted to mention is the casualty rate after the war. This is one of the highest in, in history of what happened after the war uh, between those who were sick from it, those who were maimed by it, those who you know, didn't make it through what was left of their, their civilization after that. And obviously that's going to help impact uh, the area as well. That's going to help impact things because we talk about the the high level of, uh, you know, moroseness that happens in this area, the high level of, as you've mentioned in the past, you know, uh, mental disease, different aspects, depression, uh, maybe it's firmly implanted on this area, and I know you think that there's, you know, something that predates this that causes this, but, you know, maybe that just kept eating away at the very fabric of this whole area. Yeah, and I think that, you know, there's, there's this kind of, um, magnetism uh, towards depression, and places that are kind of known for for being places uh, where negative things have happened, where they've involved kind of mental disorder, reappear years later, uh, almost as if the, the sadness is replaying itself. So it would make complete sense that um, not only these places where battles happen, but also <clears throat> you know places where the Wampanoags might have gathered uh, in numbers, places where they became sick uh, and, and were kept sick. Uh, those places would also be high, you know, potentially paranormal activity places. What What's fascinating to to people that study Native American culture is when you look at some of the other Native civilizations, uh, the other tribes that we encountered as we expanded westward as a country, it, when you get out into the Plains Indians and you get into the, you know, the, the Trail of Tears and all, all these other... Uh, Native peoples that were kind of displaced by the expansion of America. Uh, by that place, you know, by that point, the American institution had already been put together, and we were already trying to, you know, at least somehow give these people some sort of land, some sort of reservation, some sort of way. And of course, it's not enough. And I'm not even going to sit here and pretend that they were treated fairly, but at least there was some sort of effort made. But with the Wampanoags and the different tribes that were involved in King Philip's War, there was almost an eradication after the conflict was over. I mean, there was almost a, a, a fact that, you know, 
they were swept under the rug and there wasn't an effort made to help keep their culture alive. It was kind of a we won and now you go hide in the woods. And there also wasn't, uh, as we expanded westward, this kind of um, incorporating and conversion, which once again really points to New England and the Bridgewater Triangle as being unique in kind of its approach. And those things have to be looked at when people wonder, well, what's the difference between the Bridgewater Triangle and another haunted location? Um, the actions of people within that area are different. Um, so, you know, when they got to the, the Navajo, there wasn't really a huge, you know, let's convert the Navajo. It was much more, you know, and that might be due to the fact that it was like, okay, well, realistically, we're just going to move them someplace else. Um, that maybe there was some of that to it, but really it was kind of, you know, a, a manifest destiny. It was much more about, you know, like let's convert and then let's live together. Um, and that's kind of unique in this area. And then kind of as we moved west, it became much more about, like, eh, just get them off. So you have to look at, well, why was it different here than there? And, and it, to me, you know, is is people have identified themselves as, as being Wampanoag here. Uh, it, it, there has been a, a, a big mixture, more so probably than with these other tribes, and more of an integration, as you said, into these other cultures. So there might be less of that identity anyway. It might not be just the fact that they were swept under the rug, but also the fact that they were so assimilated into the culture that was here, whereas maybe the, the other tribes that we encroached upon kind of learned the lesson from that and, and made sure that they kept their distance and kept their separation. But well, we're trying, and also at some point there was much more of a, um, an intergoing between, you know, the, the different Native American tribes here. It was almost as if once the Wampanoags were knocked off, it was okay to to allow them into your tribe, the displaced ones. Maybe there's, uh, you know, a hope that you know even people that are one thirty seconds Wampanoag uh, will be able to help take back that culture. I know that uh, there is a thriving culture here in. Massachusetts of Wampanoags here in southeastern Massachusetts. Uh, they have the big powwow every year in Mashpee, and uh, as I talked to Chief Alves of the Asonet Band, and there's a number of other uh, tribes and, and organizations out there helping to keep it alive. But the one thing that they can use to really help them keep in touch with each other is the internet. And it seems kind of weird that you know we're talking about keeping such a, an ancient civilization together through the use of modern technology, but that's one way that if you want to find out more, that's where to turn to because you can actually find people who are still living this culture and they're all connected. And there's uh, actually a couple of different organizations in Massachusetts alone dedicated to keeping Native history alive. All right, Matt, who do we have on the line? We have Matt Moniz. All right, let's go back to Matt Moniz. Uh, he was out at Nine Men's Misery, and let's see if it's become Eleven Men's Misery or if, her, or if him and Andy are okay. Matt Moniz, how are things going out there? Uh, actually, pretty well. We uh, did a couple of EVB recordings, set up some night vision for a little bit, and uh, we had to come back to our checkpoint. We had to make sure we checked back in with the police. We made uh, arrangements with them so we could be out here. So it was well, let's a pretty not, neat place. Let's not let that uh, let's not let that comment uh, go by the wayside. There, very important that you you checked with the authorities. You let them know that you were going to be out there. You made sure that it was okay to be out there. Uh, we're not just trespassing as part of this investigation show. We're making sure that everything's done correctly. Right, and we had to come, we told them that we would meet them out here at a specific time and point to check in for you know safety and security. And we're back here. We did it and uh, getting ready to pack up and head out. 
All right. Well, uh, hopefully uh, when you review your evidence, you, you caught something. But at the very least, you did have a chance to, to get into a site where, you know, a number of paranormal investigators don't get the chance to spend there and actually set up shop and, and investigate there. I definitely want to come back again. Uh, if anybody does want to come out here, especially in the middle of the night like what we've done here, number one, check with the police. They're they're very amiable as long as you check with them first and bring lots of bug spray. <laughs> and we've been making sure all the other groups have it because they've learned the lesson from, from you guys. I'm, I'm sure you thought you were thick-skinned and could deal with it. Uh, these Some of these out here, they, they're about as big as Volkswagen's. <laughs> I think it's hilarious that you guys are dealing with that because uh, you've always done the show closer uh, closer to the, the spring, and so it's always been make sure you bring plenty of jackets and you know warm clothes. So it's funny to hear you guys talking about mosquitoes. Well, everybody complained when we used to send them out there in February. <laughs> it was fine with me. I was yeah. always in the studio, so. Well, you know, you can either have February or you can have July. You know, you're going to get the freezing cold or you're going to get the uh, mosquitoes. <laughs> So, uh, all right, Matt, well, stay safe the rest of the way, and uh, we'll talk to you real soon. And, and um, you know, hopefully when you go over everything, you'll have some evidence we can present here on the show. All right. All right, take care. And tell Andrew we said thank you for all his hard work. You got it. Talk uh, to you guys later. Take it easy. Bye-bye. Bye. And uh, we're, still, we're still trying to get in touch with Christina, who's out there in the Freetown State Forest. Let's try again. But if she's listening and she can hear, uh, give us a call in uh, 508-996-0500. 508-291-0500. Those are the numbers. Uh, she's contacting me over Facebook because she has Facebook on her phone but no email, and I'm just wondering if she's just not getting a strong enough signal to be able to, to make that connection because she was going to go out there deep in the forest where she'd had an experience before. Uh, Chris, I'll ask you about the site because I'm not familiar, uh, but you you probably know better than I do, you know, having written uh, Dark Woods, Cults, Crime, and the Paranormal in the Freetown State Forest. But uh, she was heading out to uh, Waterhole Number Nine at the intersection of Makepeace Road and Cedar Swamp Roads. Are you familiar with that? Um, I know both of those roads. I'm not really thinking of the intersection, but okay, I know approximately where it is. Okay, well, she'd had experiences there in the past, so she was going to head down there. But I think maybe we're just not getting a strong enough signal uh, to be able to connect with her. But if she can hear us, please call in. Uh, why don't we try getting? Uh, the Bay State Paranormal Group on the phone or Dart, whoever you can grab. I know that uh, reception can be spotty in, in both locations where they are, so whoever we can get. And uh, it, it is important, as Matt Moni said, to make sure that you get permission uh, from the authorities to, to go out there and investigate, but it's also important that when you do that, you know, you make every safety precaution you can. You know, the, the bug spray, uh, you know, wear light clothing that'll be reflective if there's cars and all that stuff. Just the way I look at it, Chris, is picture it as being Halloween. You know, all the stuff that your mom used to make you do that you didn't want to do, <laughs> like when you used to have to put the safety stickers on your costume and you said, boy, that looks stupid. But it kept you from getting run over by a car. So, uh, Chris, with with, you know, I guess with the paranormal, there has to be some degree of dorkiness to your attire. Yeah, I mean, you, you have to, just because you're doing something that's kind of outside of the, what normal people would do, doesn't mean you should approach it, you know, um, with a, with this, like, reckless abandonment. I mean, the best way you're going to get evidence, the best way you're going to be safe is to be planned. Um, and that means contacting people you're supposed to be, you know, in contact with or actually asking the right permission, but then going out physically prepared. Um, the right equipment in the right place. But then also, you know, little things like plenty of flashlights, a cell phone, an extra cell phone battery, which I've found 
uh, to be useful several times. Um, stuff, you know, people like to wear black because they make it feel like, you know, oh, now I'm the paranormal investigator, I wear black and I'm cool. Um, well, who are you hiding from? <laughs> it's, it's fine to, if you've asked permission, you're there legally. Uh, you should be able to wear whatever you want. So just make sure when you're investigating any place that's outside um, that you're kind of dressed the right way and you're, and you're being safe. Because you, <laughs> there's always more to fear from the living than the dead. I, I'd be more afraid of the ticks than anything else, I think. Well, you know, I, I thought we were going to go a whole uh, <laughs> a whole one without talking about the ticks. But all those deer that are hopping around and that people are reporting, keep in mind that they've got ticks. And the number one... Uh, cause of death from the Bridgewater Triangle with Lyme disease. Not that Lyme disease is fatal, but you know what I'm saying. Sure. All right, well, we have a, a call on the line. Maybe this is Christina, maybe it's somebody else. Let's take the call. That's what makes the live radio exciting. Good evening around Spooky South Coast. How you doing? Good evening. It's Keith from Warwick. Hey, Keith. How you doing? Good. How are you doing? Oh, we're spooktacular. That's good. Is that Chris on the line? That is. How you doing, Keith? Long time no talk. How you doing? I recognize the voice. Good luck to everybody very, out very there well. in you guys. the field and everything, out there in the Bridgewater Triangle. I know uh, Chris is an old pro of it, and um, he has many experiences to tell from there, and uh, there's always something new happening out there. I know that. Well, Ed, we've, we've got Moniz down in, in your neck of the woods down in Rhode Island. He went to Nine Men's Misery tonight. Oh, did he? Yeah, which is, uh, you know, the first that we've actually gotten into some of the Rhode Island locations involved mm-hmm. in King Philip's War. So, oh, that's excellent. I'm glad he's holding the fork out here. And I'll, I'll sleep safe tonight knowing he's out there. Well, you'll sleep safer in about 15 minutes when he crosses back over the Massachusetts state line. Oh, okay. Because yeah. the, the way Moniz drives, he can get from anywhere in Rhode Island to the state line in 15 yeah, minutes. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, thanks for checking in, Keith. And we're yeah. going to have you come in soon to talk about Slater Mill. So. Yes, I would like to do and that. And we'll talk and about the new book as well. Of course, yes. I, my book just came out, so I'd love to do that. I'll be in soon. All right, sounds good. You take care, Tim, and you, you too. too, Chris. Have a good night. You too. Bye, Keith. Bye-bye. All right, and we have Dart on the other line, Eric, and the group from Dartmouth Anomalies Research Team. How's it going out there, guys? Oh, it's going great. What a what a peaceful night out here tonight, Tim. We did uh, get lucky with the weather. We were a little bit nervous about it, but it seems to have turned out okay. Oh, absolutely. It's it. I, we couldn't ask for more of a calm night. It's uh, Believe it or not, it's very peaceful. There's no... Uh, you know, you don't feel hostile at all in any of the locations that we actually walked through and recorded. Um, we were actually just talking about, we're like, oh, well, I'm waiting for the phone call. Let's go get the shack hack and uh, let's try this thing out and you know, try to get some good EVPs, you know? Mm-hmm. And, and was there any, any luck? Anything come over that? No, nothing yet. We, uh, you know, we, we've tried numerous times, like with the K2. We've, you know, obviously until we get back and maybe try to listen to some of the EVPs to see if we capture anything. But, uh, no, nothing, uh, like, again, just very, very peaceful. You don't feel any, any threat at all, and uh, just an overall perfect night. That seems to be the common thread amongst all the teams that we have out there. They're all saying that it's a very, very peaceful night, very peaceful uh, atmosphere at the location. So, I don't know, maybe the fact that we're doing this the right way, you know, they don't feel the need to, to be overt with anything, and maybe it will pay off in the evidence review. No, absolutely. I was just going to ask you about the uh, how the other teams, if, if they've caught any... Uh, like intelligent uh, spirits or any activity. Well, I, I know the girls from Whaling City Ghost were saying that over at uh, Anawan Rock, um, they were actually getting physically touched. And uh, Luann was saying that her camera bag was being moved around, that they seemed to be very interested in her camera bag. So Beautiful. even though they can't get the EV, they might not be able to get the EVP evidence that they have in the past because of the, the amount of noise going on out there. But 
you know, they are making a connection. And I, I think that's, you know, what we talked about, how I kept saying to everybody, I want to send them to that spot because they have a history there now. And I think maybe these spirits realize what we're doing and the fact that we're, we're putting a spotlight on what happened and we're educating people about it. No, that's perfect, Tim. And, and uh, hopefully, uh, we, you know, if you do this again next year, hopefully we'll get the same type of, uh, maybe the spirits will feel comfortable with us and maybe they'll, uh, Maybe they'll come out and give us better EVPs, or maybe they'll actually show us some type of form or something that on our mini DVDs or something like that. So, sure. um, again, we're uh, we're pretty excited, and uh, again, we, we really appreciate you having us on. Oh, no problem. We appreciate you doing it for us, and we'll be talking to you real soon about the uh, the other investigation. But just real quick, straw poll. Next year when we do this, do you want to do it in February? Or do you want to stick with July? I, I like the July. <laughs> All right. it's, it's pretty. Uh, it's pretty. Uh, we're pretty lucky right now. I mean, it's. Pretty much around 70. Out here, it's about 73 degrees, and uh, February could be a little cold. Could be. <laughs> We've done it in February in the past. <laughs> <laughs> hey, let us know. I mean, it won't be in either way. All right, excellent. Thank you very much, Eric. All right, Tim. Have a good night. You too. Talk to you soon. Bye bye. You know, it's interesting, Tim. You said you know, getting the word out and educating people. Um, <clears throat> once again, in the spirit of Howard Zinn, I. I I did a survey as both a, a history teacher and just as, as a person doing research, and I looked at uh, 30 different textbooks that cover American history, uh, 20 of which were being taught, used in um, classrooms in Massachusetts, and then 10 that were being used nationally in different locations. Um, in only five of those textbooks, <laughs> and, none, and I think only two of which were in Massachusetts, is the... Um, Kingfield's War mentioned, and then it's not given more than a paragraph, and it's slant is completely uh, an uprising. There was an uprising that happened, and you know the, the troops, the British troops, you know fought them off. So it's very interesting that you know it, it's not even here in Massachusetts, it's not being taught nearly enough. Yeah, it just it definitely seems like, you know, we're trying to hide something. You know, we're trying to hide it, and we're trying to forget that it happened, and, and that's, I think now, not just through programs like this, but obviously films like Aaron's and, and the fact that paranormal investigators are very interested in this, that uh, sooner or later they're not going to be able to turn a blind eye to it anymore. You no, know, and, and so. maybe it's things like these fires, um, things like, you know, be, being in the news for other reasons, they're going to make people start look at the King Phillips War and, and then start to realize that, you know, it's time to evaluate that time in our history. Well, uh, we've got about four minutes or so left until the uh, the end of the program. We're going to try and connect with Bay State Paranormal Group, and I'm sorry that we were unable to get in touch with Christina out there in the field uh, in the Freetown State Forest. Um, I guess we were just having some issues with the phone. Uh, Matt, any luck with Bay State or no? All right, is that now? Is that the same number that we called before? Is that the same number that I gave you? Okay. Well, it seems like we're having trouble getting a hold of them, so maybe they can give us a buzz on the other line. 508-996-0500 is the number. Say hi to that guy outside out the window there. He's not. He, he can't hear us out there. But, uh, I mean, Chris, we always appreciate you coming and hanging out and, and being with us. And Even though you can't come into the studio anymore, it feels just like you're here. 
Uh, sure. You know, this is um, the best way to, uh, to see me is to not actually physically see me and to not have to talk to me afterwards. So this <laughs> works out perfectly for you. That's the way to do it. Yeah, I guess we're not going to be able to connect with Bay State Paranormal Group uh, out there. And like I said, you know, reception in these places is spotty. That's the, uh, the unfortunate byproduct of investigating locations in the Bridgewater Triangle is not only is there so much paranormal activity that can screw with your cell phones, but the fact that there's just no signal out there anywhere for any service. I mean, I, I kind of made it a point in the email for everybody to try to have Verizon cell phones because they seem to have the best network coverage down there, but it doesn't matter. You know, once you start getting deep enough in there, nothing works. I, hey, you know, I've used my Verizon phone to uh, to, to call places, usually to call my wife and say I'm on my way home from an investigation, and it's always worked for me. So I've had my battery sapped there but never uh, never lost reception, so... Maybe you guys can make Verizon a client. Oh, that that'd be good if we could get them to uh, <laughs> kind of donate phones for the uh, Triangle Investigation Show. Then uh, that would be, well, that that would just be phenomenal. Uh, now, Chris, can we get you back up here soon to to get out there and and lead a group through the uh, Triangle? I know Bay State Paranormal Group, uh, Bay State Paranormal Center, which is the the business arm of Bay State Paranormal Group. They've got some stuff planned. Um, but we'd like to get you up there at some point for a spooky South Coast investigation, and we can donate all the money to the to the Wampanoag tribe to, to help rebuild. So you just let us know uh, you when know, you plan I'm, on being up I'm here gonna next. Be up there. I'm going to be up there in October for the Monster Mash. Okay. Um, and so you know, maybe we can make something work around that time, depending on how much time I have to actually be there. So I, w- I would love to come up and investigate and, and to get into some of the other locations throughout the Bridgewater Triangle that might not have the kind of the landmark name to them but are, are just as haunted as, as the places uh, uh, that you guys are covering tonight. Yeah, because we, we'd want to help them raise money. Again, if you want to make a donation, just stay tuned. We'll give you the P.O. box as soon as we get it. Uh, and if not, you can always come down here and drop off cash, drop off a check. You know, we're, we're honest people. We're going to make sure it gets to them. And uh, you can make out the checks to Ken Alves because he's the chief of the Asona Band of Wampanoags. And, and uh, once we have all the information, I'll get in touch with Chief Alves and make sure that he provides it with us as soon as it becomes available. So uh, I guess we're just about out of time, which is a shame because... You know, there's uh, there's so much going on out there, and and you know, we're even getting text messages from the people out in the field saying that they're trying to get through to us, and it's still not working. So that just shows the triangle is alive and well. And we'll do it all again next year, and we'll definitely be talking about it more in the future. Uh, stay tuned, because as these groups review their evidence and they, they see if they have anything, we're going to bring it to you, of course. Uh, whether it be EVPs or photos or video that we can put up on YouTube or on our website, we'll make sure that we show it to you in every way possible. Matt Costa, next week, we're going to try and bring those superheroes in. That'll be excellent. Are you going to wear your tights? Yeah. I'm going to come in my villain suit. Yeah. I, Although every day is my villain. That, I wear my villain that suit. That was the big concern that we had is uh, we were worried if we started showing um, if we started showing too much publicity for the superheroes in New Bedford that maybe some supervillains would kind of occur, but if you're looking to start your own Legion of Doom, I guess we can't stop you. <laughs> you know, so uh, let's let's hope that uh, you know nothing bad comes out of having a bunch of superheroes in the studio with us. But we will do that next week because it's really interesting, folks. It's it's more than just what you think it is. It's more than just some some people running around in, in tights and a cape and and thinking that they have superpowers. They're doing real positive stuff for the community and they're really making a difference. And, and believe it or not, you know it's just 
an anonymous way of being a good Samaritan. It's a, it's a good way to get things done without having to take credit for it. So we'll try to get them in here next week. That is the plan. And, of course, we'll be here each and every week talking about the paranormal and always all week long. SpookySouthCoast.com. The archives are all updated. And uh, we hope to finish that off if, if Craig can help us out in that regard. So until next week, for Matt Costa, for Matt Moniz, who's out in the field, for everybody that joined us here tonight, we want you all to stay spectacular. Rest assured, listener, that my time here has not been easy, and what you have just heard was not fiction. Although, in many a desperate moment, I most certainly wish it had been. It's over for now, it seems. Or at least, until yesterday. AM 1420, WBSM, with the perfect way to enjoy summer. It's the Summer Cape Getaway. Spend a day on the Cape, at the beaches, in the shops, or riding bike paths. Then be treated to a show at the famous Cape Cod Melody Tent. After the show, unwind...